Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonk. Faithfully yours, as always, we are here with another fantastic episode. My name is Kenzie Cooper, if you don't know it already. This is Brandon Buchanan. We also have with us today familiar guest host, Rachel Kahn. If you haven't gotten to know her yet, you probably should start to because Red Clay Pod is like basically our sister station at this point. And if you're not listening to both, what are you I'm doing? I'm not entirely convinced. You're not just trying to like absorb us amoeba style we are it's a plan could be, could be a little to of that too um, and <laughs> uh we also have uh, a very special guest who is running for district attorney in manhattan uh janos martin uh he is the state campaigns manager for the smart justice campaign at the aclu uh he also worked on the close the workhouse campaign in st louis and was also the director of policy and campaigns at just say uh janos welcome to the show thank you uh really great to be here um, yeah well we're very excited to have you um Janos, if you just want to start off uh, by just telling the audience a little about yourself and uh, what prompted you to run for Manhattan DA. Absolutely. So I am a born and raised Manhattanite. Uh, I grew up um, with immigrant parents on the Upper West Side uh, and came of age in the 1990s, which was a time when Mayor Giuliani's uh, NYPD was uh, very much uh, out on the warpath against young uh, men of color in particular. And that really shaped my worldview and, and brought me into activism as a teenager and as a college student. And I always knew that I wanted to do something about the oppressive policing and carceral systems that um, have really been a force in this country since, uh, since mass incarceration started to rise in the 1970s. And so during and after college, I was a political organizer. I worked around the country and came home to law school to become a civil rights lawyer. And uh, through a peripatetic career that I'm sure we'll dig into different pieces of in this conversation, um, I found my way to doing things like working on the Moreland Commission to investigate public corruption, uh, managing the Close Rikers campaign at Just Leadership USA, and then working on other criminal justice issues and causes around the country. And while all of that work is really fulfilling, uh, over and over again, uh, we would bump up against the power structures that control our criminal justice system, and that includes district attorneys. And so uh, we've seen around the United States uh, people finally recognizing that district attorneys are elected political positions that should reflect the values of the communities that they represent. And that certainly hasn't been the case uh, really anywhere in New York City, but especially Manhattan. And so with the 2021 elections coming up, uh, I thought that there needed to be somebody who could challenge the incumbent Cy Vance and really bring a perspective of working with the community, reforming the criminal justice system, dismantling mass incarceration here at home. So uh, I jumped into the race a few months ago, and it's been a wild ride since. Janos, you mentioned the 90s kind of being formative years for you politically. I think we're all of a similar age bracket to you in the 90s. Uh, the, the stories that we heard and the media narratives about crime and justice were very formative for us. Uh, and I think that our approaches to uh, criminal justice are also very generational. Uh, when you get talking to older people about what people who have committed crimes are like, uh, it can kind of somewhat be very different from what your experience from actually working uh, with former convicts like. How do you get uh, messages to people who are maybe might side with you on 80% of things outside of criminal justice, but have such a 
hardwired perception of what crime is like and what commit crimes are like, how do you correct that perception in 2020, you know, years after the 90s have passed and being tough on crime was and kind of still is considered a prerequisite to holding a position like attorney general? Uh, yeah, Brandon, that is a, a very astute observation and one that uh, I experienced quite directly in the last month. Uh, so, uh, as you may know, uh, there's been a move by Governor Cuomo with the financial support of DA Cy Vance and Mayor de Blasio to add 500 state police to the New York City subway system, uh, ostensibly to uh, curb a rise in crime, which is really, I mean, there's either no rise in crime or a really small rise in crime, depending on which data sets you look at. Um, but when confronted with what a poor decision this was, Mayor de Blasio said on television, if you ask 75 out of 100 New Yorkers, I'm sure they would say that they want more police in the subway. So our campaign actually went into the subway system at different Manhattan stops and conducted a survey about whether people wanted police in the subway. And what's fascinating about that is we, we spoke to several hundred New Yorkers. And while they're actually pretty split on whether they wanted more police in the subway and whether police made them feel safe, both of those were about 50-50, more than 90% of New Yorkers said that it was a waste of money to hire 500 police officers instead of fixing something else in the subway system. And so I, I've been really beating that drum and pushing against this influx of police into the subway system. But to the question that you're asking, one of the most remarkable things is when we broke down the demographics on, that que on the questions we asked, we found that, of course, there was a racial divide and that um, people of color tended to be more skeptical of police in the subway system and feel less safe with their presence. Um, that we predicted. But the generational gap was actually much more extreme. And actually, older people of color were more conservative on this issue than young white people. And then, of course, young people of, of color were you know, the most progressive on this issue. And the reason I think it is, is because people who lived through the 80s and early 90s have this sort of palpable fear that we're one step away from going back there when that's not really grounded in any rational any rational fear, right? Like crime has gone down for 27 years in a row and again, it's gone down through Democratic and Republican mayors, Democratic and Republican presidents, recessions and economic booms. There are a whole host of reasons for why that is, but the reality is that the safest neighborhood in New York in 1992 would have been less safe than the least safe neighborhood we have now in New York City. And it's just a different time, but people of a different generation have trouble recognizing that. And so on the campaign trail, um, you know, the main way I found that I can talk to people about it is even if they are scared and, and feel like police are necessary uh, to be out and about to keep things safe, um, where I can usually meet people is the idea that, okay, if we have police present, what should they be doing to deter crime and what kind of crime should they be investigating? And most people who are older would still agree that uh, we have too many people in jail and prison and that sending people to jail and prison is not the answer to stop the cycles of harm in most cases. Um, and, you know, it's a more nuanced conversation than just uh, the one I might have with somebody, you know, in their 30s or in their 20s. But I think you can eventually get most people to the idea that we have too many people in jail and prison and come up with better solutions. Um, I think we can definitely talk a little bit about the connection between poverty and crime. But I also want to quickly touch on uh, intermediate solutions to fair jump, because uh, like I said, I, I have conversations about transportation and fair jumping. And a lot of people tend to think, well, we should, we can reduce the amount of fare jumping through like, can we give out bus passes as a shelter or something like that? Can you talk about um, what are the means to reduce um, the, the need for police in the first place? Should it be from abolishing fares altogether 
or from just loosening uh, enforcement? Or is it through something like, you know, a cash grant for buying bus passes and distributing them at shelters? What do you find as a really like effective way to deal with that goes around hiring a bunch of cops? Oh, you've hit the nail on the head again in that almost always the solution to a problem that results in crime uh, is the solution is generally found outside the criminal legal system, right? So almost always there's a socioeconomic solution that involves some form of community investment that will actually solve the problem in the long run. Of course, you also have to deal with the problem in the immediate, right? So right now there are whatever number of people um, jumping turnstiles and, and sort of we have to wrestle with how big a problem that is or isn't. I felt like this whole debate's been pretty overblown. In my experience as a lifelong New Yorker, there are really three categories of people who uh, jump turnstiles or, or don't pay the fare. There are people who are extremely poor, who it's just, you know, 275 is a burden in that moment, or buying a weekly pass is not an option. Um, so that's one category. The, the second category is people who are in a bind, right? Like we're all in a hurry getting places and like you get there and your metric card is insufficient fare and you've got to get to this job interview or whatever it is. And these are not people who do it a lot, but this is why, you know, I think another portion of people do it. And then the third category is young people. And I think it's, it's interesting that we have, um, you know, in people like Bill de Blasio, Corey Johnson, uh, folks who did not grow up in New York City, I'm sort of freaking out about this. I think, you know, if you look back at things like the Warriors, for example, right? I mean, young people jumping the turnstile has been a thing in New York for since before we were born. And like we did it, we aged out of it. At some point, you know, you've got a job and like you've you've got money and you start just buying Metro cards and swiping the fare. And I, I think overreacting to a 16-year-old kid jumping a turnstile is just like not recognizing that that's sort of like part of youth culture, um, you know, and uh, and we can come up with solutions. Like, absolutely, I think that one of the ones you suggested, giving up metro cards at homeless shelters, that seems like a no-brainer. I think, you know, moving towards abolishing fares would be much more complicated economically, but like an absolutely worthy thing to start, uh, you know, talking about. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like how we have to choose as a, as a society, like which things we're going to be scared of which things we're going to really devote our resources to addressing and fixing. And I personally just don't see young people jumping the turnstile as a crisis versus so many other crises that we have in this city, like people with mental health issues who have nowhere to stay at night. And so, you know, they have to choose between dangerous shelters or being on the street or sleeping in people's stairwells, which people don't appreciate. And I mean, that's a real problem that we should dig into for the purpose of helping those folks out. I just don't see turnstiles as rising to that level. So you were talking explicitly about how people experiencing homelessness are frequently criminalized and how people experiencing homelessness frequently end up incarcerated because there are no other services available to support them. I'm curious, how will you use your power as DA to help address this issue of the criminalization of poverty and homelessness in particular? Sure. So, so the DA has an awful lot of discretion. I mean, I guess I should have probably early in the conversation jumped into, you know, why run for Manhattan district attorney, right? And so, you know, as an advocate, as a lawyer, we're always asking principals to move their decision-making either in an individual case or on a whole group of cases as a policy. And marshalling all kinds of resources and energy and sophistication to get principals to change their positions on things like getting Mayor de Blasio to agree to close Rikers Island. Um, in the case of uh, district attorneys, they just have so much discretionary power to uh, determine what justice means for the community. That means 
who gets charged with a criminal offense, who does not, who gets offered a diversion program, who does not. If somebody is guilty of something criminal, do we punish that with prison or do we come up with a different punishment? Um, if somebody's trying to come home on parole, do we oppose that? Do we support that? These are all completely discretionary decisions, hundreds of which are made every day by the Manhattan DA's office. And the idea of having somebody in that office with our values who can actually be pushing for the right thing in each of those moments, you know, either you know, through the directives from the office or by hiring people who will execute that on a daily basis, I just think there's no comparison in terms of what elected office could transform our criminal justice system fastest. So when you talk about people who come up through the system who are experiencing homelessness or who have mental health issues or have substance use disorders, obviously all of these things can be connected. Uh, you need somebody who's sympathetic to what people are experiencing and recognizing how do we get this person help? Um, because in doing so, we'll stop the cycle of harm. So I think about um, a very pr prevalent case you experience in Manhattan, which is uh, people experiencing homelessness or addiction issues will steal from a Duane Reed. And Duane Reed has a, a very strong partnership with NYPD. So they're going to report it. The police are going to show up. They're probably going to catch the person. Um, so from Duane Reed's perspective, if you've got somebody who is, has no money, nowhere to stay, and is fighting an addiction, wouldn't you rather that person get help and get back on their feet so that they don't come back into the same Duane Reed three weeks later when we let them out of Rikers Island? Um, I just think that there is a sensible um, approach to this in which everybody wins, in which people get help through all kinds of resources that are in fact available in New York that we do have money for in New York and the cycle of harm can stop which inures to the benefit of the community. So to me this is what you know the ACLU we call our campaign smart justice because it's just common sense in a way right that you can't just punish your way out of a problem when the person who you're punishing is already you know on their last legs and so um, I just think this is the, the right approach so for somebody for example who has mental health issues who you know, pushes someone on a subway platform. Okay, technically that's assault, right? But locking somebody up for doing that is in no way going to make sure that the next person on the subway platform is safe because we're not helping the person who has been charged with that. So if we can get that person into a pre-plea program where they'll get, where they'll get mental health resources, um, that would just be better for everyone. And I think if you go problem by problem, um, that kind of solution doesn't always manifest itself, but in many cases, um, you're going to find a better way to help somebody navigate life and, and the criminal court system than by just resorting to punishment. So on the subject of reducing the number of punishments handed out, a number that your campaign uses is an 80% reduction in jail population, which I feel like a lot of people would hear that and be sort of like, that sounds like a lot. But I think if we actually were to talk about who those 80% of people are, that they might change their minds. So let's get into that a little bit, if, if you don't mind, just like, who is this 80% of people that doesn't really actually belong in jail? What did they do to get there? And like, what justifications can we give people that these people should be allowed to go back to living their lives? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's, there's some people who would who, who did and have said to me, well, that number should be, uh, you know, 100% because, uh, you know, if, if you're pre-trial, then, um, you know, you shouldn't be in jail at all. And, you know, there's intellectual merit to that for sure. I, the number 80% uh, came about for a couple of reasons. And then I'll talk about, you know, who these folks are. So one, at the ACLU, we found that, you know, we, we, we run these uh, district attorney accountability campaigns around the country and found that 
when we actually require candidates to say how much they will decarcerate, um, that's actually more valuable than asking them which policies they'll adopt. Because as you know, the criminal justice system is a little bit like a whack-a-mole. You know, you can change one policy, but then on the back end, a judge will just change the way that they do things and then the person will still wind up in jail. So if you actually commit to a percentage, then there's something that you can hold uh, somebody accountable to. That's a campaign promise you can hold me accountable to, right? And we can track it. We can say, hey, there are already 50% fewer people in jail than there were in 2019. Um, so that's why we named a percentage. And 80% really came from the idea that if you look through who's in jail, um, it's a lot of people who are there uh, either with minor charges um, or for serious charges that ultimately will probably be dropped um, uh, or pled down to or or where, you know, the serious charges merited. So uh, the number one source of people who are in jail, people who can't afford to pay bail. Now, I think money bail is immoral. And the idea that somebody's freedom would be contingent on whether they can pay for it uh, is just completely out of step with what we claim that the American judicial system is based on. Now, uh, fortunately, we, we have bail reform that we worked very hard to pass last year that will get a lot of people out of jail starting January 1st if it is enforced correctly by prosecutors and judges. And that will help a lot in terms of driving down the number of people in jail. Um, then there's also people who are there, the second biggest number is people who are there for technical parole violations. Now, these are folks who have been accused of uh, violating the terms of their parole in a way that's non-criminal. So perhaps, you know, being in the presence of somebody with a known felony record or driving a vehicle to work when you're not supposed to drive or leaving the county these are all things that are not illegal if you or I do them, but they are illegal if you're on parole. And for violating those kinds of rules, people wind up back in jail. And then the third category, biggest category of people in jail are people who have been found guilty of minor crimes. This goes back to our, our turnstile jumping, to the kinds of quality of life offenses that uh, people experiencing homelessness are often charged with. Um, and in my view, those sorts of, quote, minor crimes uh, almost never warrant jail time at all because who's benefiting from people being in jail for 20 days or 60 days? It's not as if we're achieving any public safety benefit. We're just completely disrupting a person's life for some arbitrary amount of time. So if you look at those three groups of people, that that's about that gets you to about 80 percent. And you know, we in our policy paper we we lay out some nuance to what I'm saying. We go deep into the weeds. Um, but basically. Uh, that covers everybody except for people who have been accused of crimes that uh, would reflect the sort of threat of danger to an individualized person, which I think is really the only justification you can have for locking somebody up pretrial if that person is a dangerous threat to another person. Um, not a generalized dangerous threat like, oh, they have a, a long rap sheet, but like, you know, there's somebody who might be in harm in the, in the near future. And uh and that's sort of, that's how we came up with our number. And, you know, we were very serious on our campaign about showing our work and putting out serious policy proposals. You know, we found that uh, these days it's very easy to say you're for criminal justice reform or ending mass incarceration, but, and, and people like those phrases, but they're, they're really quite empty without uh, showing, you know, what's behind them. So, you know, people go to my site and check out uh, what these policies actually say. They'll find a lot of details there about how we get there. So you just said that you have these details on your website, which is awesome. But in my experience, in order to win an election, you really have to be able to create a narrative people want to see themselves in. Can you paint a picture of what day-to-day -day life will look like in your community with you as DA? Absolutely. And that's, that's a great point. Um, 
And and one, and one of the re yeah, so I guess I'll just jump into it. Our basic philosophy, the base philosophy of my campaign is that we have overused jail and prison as a solution to society's problems. Uh, jail and prison is where we put people whose problems we don't want to deal with in our day-to-day -day life. That's why our, our jails and prisons are full of people who are struggling with mental health issues, struggling with substance use issues. People who have been cycling in and out of systems like foster care and juvenile detention wind up in jail and prison. Um, people who are extremely poor, people who are otherwise extremely marginalized. Jail and prison is just a dumping ground for us to put people where we don't want to wrestle with the ch difficult challenges involved in how to help. And in my view, uh, it's especially irresponsible for a city that A, claims to be very progressive and B, is very rich to uh, turn its backs on people in that way. And so as district attorney, I would individualize every case and ask the question of how can we get this person's life back on track so that the cycle of harm that they're in stops and they can be, they can live a life that they want to live and that is better for the community and better for society. Um, and I think we're well positioned to do that in New York. We, for example, know how to, we have resources to help people with mental health issues. We have resources for people with substance use issues. We have actual job training programs that work. We have the best universities and hospitals in the country. So we have all the tools here. Uh, as DA, I'm talking about a vision where uh, jail and prison would only be used as a last resort when we have not been able to figure out what else we can do. And that's very different than the situation we have now. And uh, I won't say I'm the only person to ever present this idea. I think, you know, it's similar to the campaign that Tiffany Caban ran in Queens. It's similar to the race that Chesa Boudin ran in San Francisco and is going to start implementing two weeks from now. Uh, it borrows some ideas from people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and Rachel Rollins in Boston. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's a unique blend of these things because I come from the community organizing world and because I'm a lifelong Manhattanite, I just see opportunities here to completely change the way um, we do things in the criminal court system. And uh, I hope that excites people. I think it will require a lot of conversations. So far I've found in, when we do outreach in, in uh, low income neighborhoods of color or in NYCHA housing, the biggest uh, pushback is not, I think that's a bad idea. The biggest pushback is, do you think that can actually happen? People have been beaten down for long time and are skeptical that change is possible. And I think it's on us to build an inspiring campaign that really helps people believe that we can do things different. Um, I think one of the things that you've talked about in your own platform is the idea that certain people age out of committing crimes. And that's one of the reasons why you want like a 20 year limit on sentence. Um, I, I talked to someone about this who's like typically very progressive, but they're also of that older generation. And they kind of shocked me. They said, well, some people need to be in there for a long time. Uh, how long does a person need to be in prison? Should it be more than 20 years, less than 20 years? How'd you come up with the 20 years number? And do you have data? Like what's, what is, what does the information tell us about uh, terms of that? Sure. I wonder, did you ask your friend if they thought 20 years was a long time? Um, they said it wasn't long enough and that some people go in and out of prison for a long period of time. They go in and out their whole lives. And uh, for certain groups of people, they just need to stay in. Yeah. You know, and, and your friend is not unique in feeling that way and, and not unique among progressives. I've had people. This friend, um, this yeah. friend for the sake of, of adding drama to the conversation was my mother. <laughs> I knew this and I was wondering if you were going to say yeah, it or not. I, yeah, so I, yeah, we can yeah. put her on blast. Yeah. 
<laughs> usually a big lefty, but when, when I told her about your platform, she was like, some people just need to stay in jail. They're just bad people. You know, so a lot of uh, my thinking on this has been informed by formerly incarcerated folks that I've worked with. I, you know, during not only the Close Rikers campaign, but uh, Close the Workhouse and Close MSDF, which is a Wisconsin prison closure campaign. You know, those campaigns are all... Um, led by people who have been directly impacted by the criminal justice system. And uh, I've gotten to work with a lot of uh, particularly men in their 40s and 50s and, and 60s who spent uh, 10, 15, 25 years in prison. And it, even in the complete absence of any attempt by the state to offer them rehabilitative services, sort of figured it out themselves and, and really turned their lives around inside of prison became very often the story as they became leaders, you know, on their block, uh, in, in prison, started doing, you know, classes, got a degree. Uh, and by the time that they're, they made parole, they were coming back, you know, ready to make a difference in their community. And so uh, in, in talking to them, you know, it's been really instructive about some of them did bad things when they were young people, right? They, they don't deny it. They're like, they, they robbed stores, they assaulted people, they, you know, they did things that they're not proud of, but over the course of maturing into adults and again, doing this largely on their own without, you know, uh, the state helping them, they, they became leaders. And um, it just really goes to show that the offense that a person commits at age 18 or 20 or 22 shouldn't uh, dictate who they're going to be the rest of their lives. And we shouldn't throw away the key on anybody who does something, even if it's something pretty bad. Uh, when they're that young. And uh, as far as like the data behind that, you know, John Pfaff, uh, who's a leading uh, criminal law professor, has a lot of data on this. Um, you can just look at all kinds of the curvature of all kinds of graphs where basically, yeah, most people are aging out of serious crime by their late 20s, early 30s. Now, there's also a lag in which they may get caught up back in prison because of the aforementioned challenges of the parole system, right? So they can come home from prison and they're no longer intending to lead a violent life, but they'll get caught up on a technicality, wind up in prison again, then they'll come out of prison, have difficulty finding a job, so they might resort to dealing, and then they'll get caught again. So sometimes seeing, watching a person go in and out of prison actually is not instructive as to whether they're still a danger to society, which is probably the, you know, the kind of image that your mother's thinking of. The reality is that there are very few people who are sort of uh, in that bad people uh, category. Now, you know, we can get in all kinds of philosophical places about <laughs> whether there are bad people, how many there are. I would say that, you know, from talking to a lot of people who have spent significant time in prison, they'll say there are some people who, you know, um, um, need more time to get their self, get their act together and probably could use more interventions in terms of, you know, support, dealing with trauma, you know, getting access to mental health care before they would be, you know, a safe member of the community. But the reality is the statistics bear out that most people do age out of crime and it's just senseless to keep people locked up for 25, 30, 40 years. And I feel very strongly about that. And, you know, I, I, I did get some pushback when I put out that number. And I think it'll be a topic of conversation in this campaign. But the number, in addition to being one that's sort of data-driven, is one that's being pushed for by um, the campaign to end life sentencing. And that's a national movement driven largely by people who have served life sentences or their equivalent who are asking DA candidates and other elected officials to make this pledge. Uh, I kind of wanted to talk about somebody who is a good example of that. Uh, our friends at Color of Change circulated a position, uh, petition about uh, Tyrone Abraham, who is also in your state. I don't know if you know his situation, but uh, he committed a murder at age 19 and he got 25 years. And in those 25 years, he got a BA, he got a master's, 
He became an advocate for gun violence and gun control. Um, and he actually got parole uh, really early in 2019. And one of the issues with the justice system is it's so layered that, as you said, somebody can get out on one thing and get caught up on something else. As soon as this dude got out of prison, uh, he got picked up by ICE uh, because he... Uh, immigrated with his parents when he was 12 years old uh, and they're like discussing deporting. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how age and time should uh, impact his sentencing or the fact that he's literally just done a, a, a huge prison stint and what kind of red tape cut in order for this person to get some measure of clemency, some measure of control over his life back? I mean, clemency is absolutely one place where the movement's actually heading in the next couple of years. You know, just as you've seen a national effort around bail reform that's yielded some really positive victories and first steps in, in states around the country. Uh, clemency is something that I think is coming down the pipeline as um, a really important tool for decarceration because in that example, I, I think clemency about, I don't actually know the details of this case, but you know, clemency would be required in order for ICE not to have the right to deport this person. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, ICE under, well, not just President Trump, but also President Obama, you know, it was a very aggressive deportation force. And uh, as a DA, you have limits as, as to what you can really do about that. Um, I guess I'll really quickly touch on this so we don't move past it, but you know, New York City is a city of immigrants, right? I mean, my parents are immigrants. Uh, a lot of my friends growing up were immigrants, were immigrants' kids. And uh, there, is, there, is, there are some things that a DA can do that, that are really important to protect. Uh, one of them is not um, conditioning, conditioning uh, diversion programs on pleas, right? Because once somebody has accepted a plea, um, ICE can make moves on them, right? So if your diversion program is pre-plea, then, um, and the person completes it and you dismiss their record, it makes it more difficult for ICE to uh, sort of proceed against them. And so I would make sure that our office was fully trained on that implication and, and um, you know, recognizing the collateral consequences of the deportation pipeline whenever it was interacting um, with a defendant who, who had that in their background. Um, but then back to clemency, you know, this is a really hard one because, um, you know, clemency is in theory a great tool that all governors could be using, but uh, the sort of law enforcement establishment like police unions, most district attorneys, uh, parole officers, uh, you know, they're, they're very uh, charged up and mobilized against clemency pardons and, uh, you know, have, have been very successful in using the media to really retell the story of a person's offense over and over again as a way to scare governors from granting those people clemency. Uh, so I, I hope that in this case, you know, is if it's in New York, that I hope it's, you know, that Governor Cuomo does the right thing. He has not been great on clemency um, in general, so I, I wouldn't be bullish about it. But, um, you know, you're going to be seeing a lot more of advocates pressing on the issue of clemency in the years ahead. So this is... A little bit of a pivot away from specifically clemency and towards a larger philosophical question about criminal justice reform and restorative justice. Um, one of the biggest bogeymen you see that people throw up in opposition to deinstitutionalization and to prison abolition in particular is what are you going to do with violent offenders? So, you know, we have these cases where there is a victim who has been materially harmed by a crime. Uh, my question is, what are alternative measures that can be implemented that will allow victims to participate in a restorative way without a punitive intent, without 
punishing people as such or without punishment being the end goal of the criminal justice system and in what ways can you support victims while still focusing on restoration above retribution so the, the district attorney can do so much in this area and the Manhattan DA has done uh, nothing in the area of restorative justice which is really a shame um, especially because you know, even the Brook Brooklyn and the Bronx are moving forward have moved forward with programs uh, with common justice which is a nationally recognized leader on restorative justice um, including restorative justice in the context of violent offenses which is you know kind of cutting edge in terms of what's being practiced around the country I think you know, victims have to be central in all of these conversations I think and what's really frustrating to watch is uh, district attorneys and, and police officers uh, using uh, victims uh, and, and speaking in their name when in fact many victims uh, have made clear that their their biggest desire is to be safe and for the cycle of harm to stop. And as, we, as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, sending somebody to jail or prison, whether it's for 30 days or, or 10 years, is not necessarily going to stop the cycle of harm or make that victim feel safe in the long run or the short run. So we need to bring victims into the conversation. And uh, with restorative justice specifically, it is a, a central component of restorative justice that the victim has to willingly participate, right? So when we talk about some of these examples of extreme harm, as you called them, right, there might be a situation in which the victim doesn't want to participate, and that is totally within her his right. Uh, and when you talk about you know, violent sexual offenses, for example, I could, you know, imagine that's an area where it would be extremely traumatic for the victim to participate in many cases, the victim could opt not to. So there are limits to how restorative justice can be used, right? Because it does require buy-in from the defendant, it requires cooperation and willingness from the victim, and it requires uh, the community to be engaged. And we don't have great structures for that set up anywhere in the United States, um, although they're, they're being developed. But this is something I'm really serious about. And you know, one of the uh, one of the weird quirks of the Manhattan DA's office is that it has this slush fund that's uh, produced by uh, financial penalties, uh, and that money right now is being used for all kinds of random purposes, including funding the state police in the subway. And I've made clear that I would use some of that funding, that discretionary funding, uh, to invest in cutting edge restorative justice programs, including the kind of programs that we don't necessarily have anywhere in the United States now, um, with the recognition that they will take some time before we figure out how to do this correctly. Um, and just to generalize my answer a little bit about do we do punishment or do we do rehabilitation? I think we just have to, we have to be sensible about this and recognize that there is no intrinsic value in being punitive for its own sake. Um, we need to think about uh, safety in terms of how do we stop the cycle of harm from happening in the future. And that means that we need to focus on getting the person's life back on track, uh, having them understand the consequence of their action and holding them accountable. And uh, a long prison sentence doesn't mean more accountability. That's not how people being locked up recognize it. So uh, I, I just think we, we need to be thoughtful about uh, how we're going to stop these cycles of harm from happening in the future. So you mentioned um, Tiffany Caban a while back, and I want to go back to her for a second, because uh, I know that this is a campaign that we were excited about, you know, uh, internally here. And I'm curious, um, did did Caban's campaign kind of change 
what you felt like was possible or like what New York even larger felt like was possible? And are there specific parts of her platform that were like particularly inspiring to you? I remember when Tiffany uh, was being talked about as uh, a candidate that the DSA was going to support. And so naturally I was interested and I had not met her at that time. So we got some coffee and before that I, I looked over her platform and tried to learn a little bit about her. And by the time we met, I said, listen, you don't need to sell me on the platform at all. I'm in, but you know, what's our path to victory? Let's talk strategy. And, you know, I told her I'd support her that day, which was um, before petitioning started. Uh, I probably on my refrigerator have a palm card where there were such few people endorsing her at that time that uh, they, they used me. And I'm like, I don't think I really have much juice in Queens, but uh, feel free to. <laughs> and uh, it was a really inspiring campaign. It was really exciting to see the way that the community came together, that the progressive movement really uh, unified around her and that she pushed certain issues into the conversation that had either never been in an electoral conversation uh, in New York or have just sort of been swept under the rug before, uh, like decriminalization of sex work, for example. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, I, I, I went into the campaign uh, already sort of agreeing with her platform and, and having tried to um, push those goals in other ways. But the biggest thing I learned explicitly from the campaign is how New Yorkers would react to transformative criminal justice. There was no real way to know uh, before that. Uh, you know, the If you look at, for example, what's remarkable about the uh, Brooklyn DA race, the Eric Gonzalez one, just two years earlier, is that the most liberal candidate on that stage in 2017 would have been towards the right end of the stage in the Queens debate, because the, the conversation on criminal justice has just moved so much in New York. And when we were out knocking on doors or, or uh, petitioning in the street, I was just struck by how rare it was for somebody to push back against Tiffany's platform. Basically, if you're a New Yorker who believes that the system is broken, then you're fine with whatever bold ideas it takes to fix it. You're not going to quibble as so many people in the legal or political bubble do about well, bail reform for this category of people, maybe this category goes too far. This category is more makes more sense. Either people, you know, if you tell people, I, I want to eliminate cash bail, people who don't trust the criminal legal system will say, sure, go for it. And that was a, revel a revelation to see in person. And it did make me think that it was possible to go big and win in New York City. And of course, she came so, so close to doing so. Uh, and it was definitely a, a factor in, in my choosing to run because I only would have run for Manhattan District Attorney if I thought I could win with the values that I have. Uh, I just don't see the point in, in running for office if you think you're going to have to modulate the core things that you care about to, to win. And Tiffany's campaign really showed that New Yorkers do have an appetite for this. You know, Not every New Yorker, but enough to, to win an election like district attorney. Uh, how do your thoughts on capitalist structures of capital, uh, how has that influenced your thoughts on criminal justice and uh, how you think criminal justice? So I hadn't thought about that a lot until um, early 2018. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Close the Workhouse in your introduction. Uh, that's a campaign that really meant a lot to me. Uh, it's still ongoing in St. Louis, but essentially activists, many of whom had come up through Ferguson, uh, we're looking to close a jail called the Workhouse that made national news when uh, the previous summer um, temperatures there had reached 120 degrees with no air conditioning. And it, it's just an absolute horror show. I mean, it is even worse than any jail we have in New York. And you know, I, I was on the phone with various activists and felt like the biggest contribution I could make would be to go down there for a short amount of time and help them structure a campaign and sort of work through the mechanics of how to really push a campaign like that across the finish line. because. 
They already have the organizing skills. They already have political energy. And uh, you know, I spent a few months down there and was really struck by just how difficult it was to change a system in St. Louis that where uh, there was just no money to do any of the changes that we've been talking about sort of throughout this podcast, right? Like, where would you fund a restorative justice program? What would what would fund mental health diversion? Um, how do you invest in schools instead of prisons? You know, St. Louis City is broke. It's it's running runs a budget deficit every year, and the debate is over whether to close a school or not repave certain roads. And it's just really sad to try to um, push for transformative change without the resources to do so. And it really, in a way, radicalized my perspective on what we need to be doing in New York. Because we come back here, we're talking about the richest city in the country. We have a 95 billion dollar city budget, a $160 billion state budget. You know, those numbers might be off. Yeah, the Manhattan DA's office has millions of dollars in discretionary funding. It could close the St. Louis budget gap by itself. Uh, and when you start just looking at all of that, you're like, it is unacceptable for us to not dramatically change our system when we have the resources to do it. And in fact, if we are unable to change our system um, to one in which people who are experiencing homelessness and mental health crises are not given better options than jail. That's an indictment not only of the criminal court system, but that's an indictment of capitalism. What is the point of being the richest city and the richest country in the world if our policy answers are lock up people because they make us uncomfortable when they struggle for help? So I really felt like the just working in the criminal justice space in St. Louis and New York back to back crystallized for me that uh, there is a, a deep irresponsibility to uh, taking the wealth generated by capitalism and not um, not using it to redress the social harms that capitalism causes. So, um, you know, I'm still working through some of my, my, my own economic uh, theories. You know, it's not my area of expertise, but uh, it's certainly one way in which I see the two issues are totally intertwined. Well, Yanos, I think this has honestly been like incredible. You've given a number of very interesting, thoughtful answers to these questions. But we are a somewhat comedic podcast, unfortunately. And that means that I do have to, by law, ask you a stupid question at the end of the episode. So I'm curious. How many cast members of the Warriors would you offer clemency to? <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to be a spoil sport. But, you know, the DA doesn't get to offer clemency, but <laughs> I, governor. Uh, but I would say, uh, you know, uh, or sweet a sweet plea deal. Yeah, <laughs> I would take a look at that kid who caused all that trouble and see how much he's grown over the last twenty years, and see if he's turned his life around. Give him another shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, where do people need to go in order to join your campaign and be like more of a part of your world and a part of what you Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, well, the, our campaign website is Janos for DA. So that's J A N O S F O R D A.com. And, you know, I come from the, the, the organizing movement, the criminal justice movement. So we really try to build that kind of community on the campaign and and I just want to definitely plug that, you know, this is not a, a one man band. This isn't just sort of personal crusade. I very much see this as part of the work that we're all doing together. And so I would love for people to get involved. And uh, there are just a, a ton of ways to do so. So Jack, definitely check out Yanosforda.com. And you can also check out other policies we didn't really get to talk about today, like uh, wage theft, um, political corruption, and uh, ending the war on drugs. You know, these are all things that have been really motivating for me to get in this race and i'd love to share that we well, come back record, anytime yeah we, we would love to have you back it. on we love to do it uh, awesome. well as always those links are going to be in the show notes for uh, yanos's campaign yanos also plug your twitter real quick because that's sure. a big platform for us 
I've heard of Twitter. Yeah, it's uh, you can find me at Janos Martin. So that's J A N O S. M-A-R-T-O-N. Awesome. Thank you. Once again, all of that will be in the show notes. Go check this guy out. He's got some amazing ideas for Manhattan District Attorney. Uh, I really hope you make it. And I hope to talk to you again soon because I also want to get into some of those topics that we did not have a chance to discuss today. But we have to call it somewhere. And this is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we are not safe for wonks. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Rachel Kahn. And our guest was Janos Martin. He is running for Manhattan District Attorney. You already know it, but go check it out. Thank you so much, everyone, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.